The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me, do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Everyone, could everyone hear Roger okay? Okay, good. Good. So, uh, I'm not going to mess with the sound system. <laughs> How many of you have ever been in what's called now a toxic relationship? Okay. All right. And uh, for the rest of you, you know, you know what a toxic relationship is, right? It's a relationship where the benefits are unequal, where one person uses or abuses another person, or where instead of giving life, the relationship causes pain in one of the parties. Now, if this has ever been you with a person, um, I am so sorry that you have to go through that. I hope you are out of it, and if you are not, just want to let you know we are here to support you. Um, but lately, I'm seeing this term, uh, toxic relationship, uh, leave like person-to-person relationships, and just talk about partnerships that are, that are harmful to people. I see people talk about their toxic relationships with like Halloween candy, with... <laughs> Uh, the snooze button on their alarms. And recently I saw someone say that they are in a toxic relationship with Amazon Prime. <laughs> I guess I guess I'm lucky because my most toxic relationship right now is with the Cleveland Browns because they do not benefit me at all, and I was told they're supposed to be good this year. Now, the entire Old Testament is a story of a toxic relationship. And no, it's not just the Israelites and the Egyptians, or David and Bathsheba, or even Cain and Abel. That wasn't really much of a relationship. The toxic relationship of the Bible is the relationship between God and God's people. God delivers, guides, and saves the Israelites. They are led to the promised land, God overthrows entire kingdoms for them and gives them powerful rulers. But what do they do? We heard two weeks ago that they turned on each other and that the kingdom split up, and eventually they started to turn on gods. The Israelite, excuse me, they turned on God to other gods. The Israelites chase other gods, gods in the form of bulls and birds of prey that harness forces of nature for power and conquest. They turn to gods in the forms of little totems that help you with good luck. And anyone like right now clutching their rabbit foot or four-leaf clover, I'm sorry. Um, Or they turn to goddesses in the forms of like little statues of rotund women that you would clutch and they would help you give birth. So despite 
having no other gods, being rule numero uno, that was supposed to set the Israelites apart, the Israelites ran as fast as they could to be like the more powerful nations around them who had gods that, let's face it, were just cooler. And they did not treat the poor and vulnerable among them with dignity as those who bear God's image. More about that in Bible study today, by the way. The Israelites turned to God when it was convenient, still telling the story but giving God lip service in his temple in the form of empty ritual. And it was into this world that these figures who show up at the end of the Hebrew scriptures, at the end of what we call the Old Testament, stepped in. They were called the prophets. They called foul on this whole mess. They told people to stop, and they told people to turn their hearts back to God. And at the core of their message is this. You are hurting God. Now, Hosea is one of these prophets from the northern kingdom in the 8th century who told the story of the toxic relationship between God and God's people very vividly in a little parable. Now, Hosea claims that God instructed him to marry a prostitute named Gomer, not any relation to Pyle. And let's just say that in this marriage, things did not work out as well for Hosea and Gomer as they did for Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Now, in this, in this book, the unfaithfulness of Israel is told by Hosea in this story that is in language that is challenging at times and at other times very disturbing and upsetting, invoking images of God turning away from his people and even violence against women. And it's tempting for us to just turn away ourselves from all of this in the world that the prophets lived in and kingdoms that were uh, um, committing what's called apostasy, but where people were faithless and people were turning to other gods and kingdoms were falling apart to invaders. And it's easy for Christians to say, well, Israel just kind of made a mess of things and then Jesus came along and everything got fixed. When we look at the pain and anger of God, it's sometimes too easy to think about, or it's too ugly to think about. And the message of the prophets is easy to overlook. <clears throat> but I think we kid ourselves if we think we're any different from the Israelites that the prophets thundered against. Now, sure, we may not run to other gods or idols, but all of us run away from God to other things all the time. I think the sad fact is that God's still in a toxic relationship with us. He's certainly in a toxic relationship with me, and I work for him. We, we forget, we turn our backs to, and we otherwise cheat on God all the time. Now, and I don't think it, we do this because we're bad or we're rotten or we're sinful. I'm not here to beat up on you guys today, but... This is, at least when I start cheating on God, this is why. Right? God comes to us in these old stories, in this little sanctuary, in this little hour that we get to spend together once a week, 
and maybe even every once in a while in some Bible reading that might be a little too confusing or upsetting, or if you're me, you just over-intellectualize it so you don't really have to listen to it. And maybe comes to us in these prayers that we say, but this can seem too little in the midst of everything that we face out there, everything that comes to us in anxieties and fears and challenges, and yes, even the defeats that we face when we go out there every week. It is so easy to turn our backs on people who need us, especially when they annoy us. It's too easy to fight for our own status and our own comforts. It's too easy to get angry about all the problems in the world or think that some ideology or God help us, some political party or politician will fix it. It's too easy to shake in fear losing, about losing our jobs, our health, our stuff. And maybe sometimes it's just too easy to give in to that impulse that says one more drink, one more pill. Now we may not run to other gods, but we run to other things. We put our trust in our own plans and in our own ideas. Sometimes we leave altogether trusting in our distractions. And sometimes we trust in our indifference to our neighbors who are in need. And it's also very easy for us in our Western comfort to turn our backs on this planet, God's good creation that is in crisis. And all the while, God's just left there in the dark. Getting maybe some lip service from churchgoers and kind words from people who ignore God but otherwise insist that, hey, I'm spiritual but not religious. Now, don't get me wrong. We might turn to God every once in a while like someone texting, hey, you up, to an ex-girlfriend at 3 a.m., doing those little spiritual booty calls every time we need some help not unleashing our true feelings on someone in the workplace, or getting through a Las Vegas traffic light, making a left turn in only one light cycle if you can manage to do it. Congratulations. But otherwise, the love and devotion of God that is lavished on us by God is seldom returned. It's a toxic relationship. In the Bible, as now, God has to face it. I always imagine God, you know, going to his therapist or her therapist, and uh, the therapist just says, God, do you ever think your people maybe just aren't that into you? <laughs> but here's the good news. We're not that into God, but God just doesn't care. <laughs> God's going to come back and take more punishment from us. Because God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. I don't want you to feel bad. God loves for those little spiritual booty calls, whether it's some minor thing that you need to get through or some major challenge you're in the midst of. God loves nothing more than to embrace us in times of trial. God doesn't care how long we've been gone. God just wants us to come home. God is ride or die for us, quite literally. God rides with us in every prayer, every struggle where we turn to him, every time we share that divine presence with someone in need. And when we turn from God, when we give up, when we sin, what God does is not ride, but die for us, quite literally, right up there, to get us back. A full commitment is what God is thinking of. We'll never get this from any other God. And this is God's promise to us with apologies to Mr. Astley. He's never going to give us up. He's never going to let us down. 
and he's never going to desert you. And we know this because of the little glimpse we get of God's heart in Hosea this morning. Toward the end of this book, we find that a spousal relationship or a romantic relationship is not what God has with us at all. All the uh, boyfriend theology of praise songs notwithstanding. What God has with us is a parental relationship. Parental relationships are toxic. I was telling Mary I got smacked with a bag of goldfish at five in the morning on Friday with my son saying, open this. (laughs) But I didn't care. Anyone else did that to me, I'd probably punch them, but not my son, right? Because this is what it's like when you're a parent. Parents bring children into the world. They care for them. They celebrate every little step, every new first, every milestone. They agonize over every pain, and no matter how much they get pushed away, they come back. And not only am I a parent myself, I've sat with far too many parents who are holding their children dying from addiction in their arms, who even in the midst of pain, and I am sure what is disappointment greater than I can imagine, confess to me that one inch of their love has not left their hearts. God is your parent. God is your mother. God is your father. He says it right here in Scripture about his people that turn their backs on God. He says, I was like those who lift infants to their cheek. I taught them to walk. I bent down and I fed them. I opened that bag of goldfish. From creation to the cross, this is the love of God. Not some special feeling in the sky or the love of God that needs to be made real in our actions. It is the very real love of God that is expressed in God's actions. God brings us into the world. Anyone who's been there at a birth can attest that something else is going on. God gives us food to eat. God puts people in our lives. God hears our prayers. God puts clothes on our bodies. God dies for us. And what God does here is gives us concrete promises of eternal life right there in the water that splashed in our heads and right up there at that table that we come to every week. That's what we are eating. We are eating eternal life. We are eating God's love, right? This is the love of a parent. They give everything and they don't even think about it. They don't care. And parents don't want anything from their children other than their well-being and their happiness. One of my favorite theologians in the early church said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's what God wants, you to be fully alive. And if this description of parents is not the way that you experienced parents, I hope that you find people who were that for you, even if they weren't related to you. And if you still haven't had that, I hope that God, in one way or another, can be this for you. Because for me, it was from my own dad that I learned about what God's love truly is. I was about 17 years old. I had stayed up all night 
to study for a Latin exam. Many of you may have heard this story from me before. I had stayed up all night to study for this exam. It was Ovid. I still remember this vividly. I still don't read Ovid because of what happened. So I... I'd studied for this Latin exam all night, and I was uh, driving to school, and I carpooled uh, with my buddy, and I was driving my dad's company car because he was out on, on business, and my mom really didn't want to drive me to school, but it was like this big thing, and I got this big lecture about how this is a company car. Anyway, you know what happened. So I was about two blocks from school, and I'd fought... Yeah, I lived about 20 minutes from, uh, I lived in the suburbs and had to drive to downtown Cleveland to go to school. And I had fought falling asleep. And my buddy, of course, is passed out in the passenger seat, uh, fully asleep. And I uh, was like, oh, man, I'm almost at school. That's great. And so I just kind of let go a little bit and shut my eyes. Uh, but I didn't just shut my eyes. I full on fell asleep. And I knew this because in the next second, I woke up with an airbag in my face. I had plowed into two uh, parked cars. This entire neighborhood had came out, uh, and I just kind of got out of the car. My buddy, by the way, still sleeping. I wake him up, and he just kind of looks around, airbag, uh, you know, in, in his face, and uh, he, he just, luckily he was able to open the car door. He's like, man, this is bad. I'm sorry. And then he walks to school. <laughs> and... Uh, so, uh, you know, my mom, of course, is giving me the business all day. I have to call the tow truck. I have to talk to the insurance company to tell them what happened, even though I'm not technically, like, you know, allowed to drive this car. I have to call the human resources department at my dad's work. And I'm just home terrified because my dad is out of town, and I know eventually he's going to call, and I know eventually my life is over. <laughs> but just like God, my dad did not come in wrath. When that phone rang and my mom said, Matt, your dad wants to talk to you. Pick up the phone, right? Days before cell phones. Some of you may not even remember this, right? But I had a phone line in my room, so I had to, I had to like, you know, go pick up the phone. And I pick up the phone, and I'm just getting ready to get absolutely beat up. All I hear is, how are you doing? Not a word of judgment. Not a word of you really screwed up. It was just... How are you doing? The only person that entire day that was there for me, God, if, Dad, if you're listening, thank you, was my old man. And he took me to court. We solved the whole thing. He did not come in wrath because that was my father. And he was there for me. So if you've got anything that you think God's about to give you the business for, no, he does not come in wrath. He's not a mere mortal. He loves you. She loves you. And God will never give you up. Amen. Our hymn of the day is, What Wondrous Love Is This?